So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desire, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. So they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God, who will judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those in need of a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. I remember as a child, most weekends we spent at our grandparents' homes. On my dad's side and my mom's side both, they were large family gatherings with aunts and uncles and cousins and everyone coming. As we got older, I think sometimes my brothers and I would, would relish the opportunity to stay home, to try to connect with some of our friends at home. But every weekend, it was still back to the farm or back to Grandma and Grandpa Smith's house. And I remember sometimes that we would put up some resistance against something that the family wanted to do. And we had this silly ditty that we would sing sometimes. I don't even know who taught it, where we learned it. Every party needs a pooper. That's why we invited you, party pooper. Now that, I hope, went through Facebook Live. I'm not sure if they edited that out or not. But anyhow, um, a little bit about my family, my growing up. Um, so when Peter writes this letter to the Christians in Asia Minor, what he is trying to do is trying to guide them away from their old way of life into this new way of life. The new way of life is following Jesus. The old way of life was succumbing to Roman entertainment. It was an entertainment culture, much like the culture that we live in here today. The Roman entertainment included things like uh, risque theater. You could go to the theater and, and see some uh, inappropriate um, activities. You could go to the chariot races. 
and the gladiator contests, and those were um, not supported by Christians because um, those contests were often to the death. And there was this disregard for human life, and that was one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith from the very beginning was to regard all Christian life as, um, as a sanctity of God. And so um, for these early Christians, it was a matter of turning away from some of these activities. Also, they were, um, Peter is trying to help them to turn away from some of the act, uh, actions that they perhaps used to, to do, some of the activities and some of the ways that they responded to, to issues in their families um, that would have been considered harmful. Some examples would be um, having an indulgent temper, someone who is raged, enraged, uh, maybe even borders on abuse, at least verbal abuse. And um, others would have been sex outside of marriage, uh, drinking, slander, uh, lying, coveting, and theft. This combined, these things combined, with the Christian refusal to worship other gods or to burn incense to the emperor brought great suffering for these early Christians. These new followers of Jesus suffered abuse from the unbelievers who were their former friends and even family members. Peter describes them, these different activities, acts of abandon. He said this was behavior lacking of moral constraint, often exhibited in sexual acts and violent acts. Lusts human impulses toward immorality, uh, something that leads one to self-gratification, instant gratification, feasting and drunkenness. These were exhibited oftentimes at some of the festivals that they celebrated, wine and food festivals. Uh, there was a festival for Dionysus, who was the goddess of wine, and there would be obviously uh, too much drinking and celebrating at these festivals. So it was a lack of self-control and also an example of destructive behavior. Idolatry, worshiping other gods. In first century Rome, it was a polytheistic culture. And so you worshiped your gods, and then out of kindness, I guess, for your neighbors, you worshiped their gods too. And if you didn't worship one another's gods, these Romans were highly offended. And so when the Christians refused to worship other gods other than the one true God, the God of creation, the God of redemption in Jesus Christ, the God of sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, when Christians worshiped this one in three or three in one God, they were offended because Christians wouldn't worship their gods too. So when Christians gave up these things, as Peter had commended them to, they suffered from abuse from their family and their friends for leaving the old way of life 
and for living a new way of life. They were party poopers, right? Well, Peter commends these Christians for suffering boldly. In their suffering, he says, they are living out loud as Christians. They are desiring to follow Jesus and not their old way of life. When I was in seminary, I had a, a class on addictions. And that class in particular was fascinating because not only did we read a lot of books and write a lot of papers, but we also spent one week as interns in a chemical dependency unit at one of the local hospitals. And so th this internship was a part of our class, an internship at a recovery uh, treatment center. I spent one week, Monday through Friday from eight to five at Abbott Northwestern Hospital in their chemical dependency uh, center. And I learned a lot that I would never have learned from reading any books about it. I read a lot of books, the experience just layered things on top of what I'd learned from the books. One of the interesting things that I discovered was recovering people need to develop new friendships, new relationships. Because if they go back into their old relationships, their drinking friends or their using friends, those friends will oftentimes cajole them, encourage them, try to get them back to being a user again, to being an alcoholic again. You see, there's this necessity for that to happen because they don't want their own way of life questioned. And so the, one of the most difficult things for recovering people is to realign all of your relationships. To be able to say no to the old friends, even though emotionally it may be hurtful, being able to say no to the old friends so that you can live this new life of recovery. These Christians in Asia Minor and Turkey were doing something very similar. They were disassociating from family and friends that refused to follow Jesus. Friends and family that formerly they would have hung out with. In verse 4 of our reading today, Peter writes this, Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. So they slander you. I want to tell you a little secret here. Sometimes we are reminded that we will be judged. But we don't always recognize that judgment. Let me explain. After this understanding of separating from family and friends, being abused, being uh, suffering this abuse, these uh, early Christians, these new Christians, oftentimes would um, experience this suffering in, in a way that, that felt um, defeating. And Peter is telling them, don't be defeated because everyone will be judged. Everyone will be judged. The end is near and everyone will be judged. So this is my little secret. Sometimes, when I'm driving in my car, I actually go faster than the speed limit. 
maybe sometimes four to five miles over the speed limit. And I do that because I know that I have a good chance of not getting caught. And if I don't get caught, I have no consequence to pay for it. And it actually helps me to get to my destination a little quicker. So what Peter is saying here, what Peter is saying is that this is different. Because even though these friends, family members who have decided not to follow Jesus, even though they may not be caught in the literal sense, like me when I'm driving four to five miles over the speed limit, they will be judged. I don't have to worry about being judged. But in this context, Peter is saying, we need to worry about being judged. He's saying that all will face God who will judge everyone, whether you are caught or not, whether you believe that there is God, uh, that there is a God or not. In verse 5, remember that you will have to face God who will judge everyone, both the living and the dead. All will face God. And then in verse 7, Peter tells us that the end of all things is near. Now this is where I want you to have your pen handy. Because if your translation reads like mine, it says that the end of the world is coming soon or the end of the world is near. And that's actually a mistranslation, I believe. As you look at the Greek, it's not a temporal sense that, a, that is used here. It's not looking for a date, a time, that the end will happen. It's not something that God put out there so you can figure it out by the signs of the world. What it says here is that the end of all things is near. And this means that we are living in the last stage of a process that God has initiated. And that process began 2,000 years before Christ with the story of the Hebrew people. And that process continued through the presence of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through his ministry, his life, his suffering, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And now, after the gift of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, we are in the last stage of God's divine process. So it doesn't matter whether they were expecting it to happen in 20 years, or if we're expecting to have it, have it happen in 2,000 years, or if we're going to have to wait for 20,000 years, it doesn't make any difference. Because that's not the point. It's not a point in time. The point is, it is when God's divine action comes to fulfillment. So that's what we are waiting for. The fulfillment of God's kingdom here on earth 
as it is in heaven. And we are in the last stage because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That resurrection of Jesus Christ has set the final stage into motion. And we are privileged to be a part of that time, of that process, of that fulfilling that God has promised. So, <clears throat> they have left an old way of life. They have been suffering for leaving that old way of life. They have been living into a new way of life, and now, Jesus, and now Peter tells them that um, in this new way of life that the end of all things is coming upon us. So in, the, in light of that, in light of the end of all things, then Peter concludes this section of Scripture with four things, four ways that he believes that we as Christians should live. And so... Um, let's, if you have your journals, you can take notes on these if you'd like. But these, these are the four things that, that uh, Peter highlights for us as followers of Jesus. The first one is uh, found in verse 7. Think rightly and be clear-minded so that you can pray. We often think of our right thinking, you know, of trying to get our thinking right in order to make good and wise decisions to help communicate more effectively. But that's not what Peter says here. He says he wants us to be thinking rightly in order to pray. So prayer is the, is the end result of our thinking rightly. Not good, good decision making, not not strategies, not guidance, but prayer. And as we think rightly in order to pray, it's helpful for us not to be reactive Christians. If you are anxious about your life, if you're anxious about the state of the world, I would argue that you are focused on the wrong things, according to Peter. What Peter wants Christians to be focused on is yourself in this sense. Focus on yourself to make yourself a more effective follower of Jesus, a more effective recipient of the faith. Be accountable for your mistakes. Be accountable. And worry less about everyone else's mistakes and sins and problems because you can't do anything about them anyhow. But what you can do is you can work on yourself. So focus yourself on being less anxious, on being less disruptive, and being more clear-minded. It's the other word that Peter uses in this first, uh, this first point. Being clear-minded is the opposite of being drunk. So when you think about being clear-minded, you're thinking of being sober, uh, being clear about who you are as a follower of Jesus. The second point that Peter highlights for us as followers is to love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Earnest love speaks not 
of an emotional intensity, this earnest kind of love, oh, I'm going to love you. It's kind of like when you squeeze your child or your grandchild. That's not the kind of earnest love that Peter is talking about. This earnest love is a persistent love, a love that continues even in the midst of disagreement and dissension and conflict. Earnest love covers all sin because in this context, love is antithetical to hatred. Many scholars believe that what Peter was alluding to here is Proverbs uh, chapter 10, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, let's take a look at Proverbs 10, verse 12. This is what it says. Hatred stirs up quarrels. You could add division, dissension. Hatred stirs up those things. But love makes up for all things. In some translation, love covers for all things, for all sins. So what love does is it persists even in the midst of disagreement and discord. It continues and it persists in love to cover the attempts to tear the church apart. Karen Jobes the, is the uh, theologian that I've been studying to try to understand First Peter uh, more clearly. And uh, one of the comments that she makes in her commentary is that, um, that in our world today, there are so many Christian churches in every community that um, when people have a big disagreement in a church and a church splits, there's lots of other churches to go to. So people just transfer and go to a different church that they find more to their liking. But she said, you know, that wasn't possible in Asia Minor in the first century. There were so few Christians that if you had big disagreements, you had to work together to process those disagreements and you had to continue to love one another even in the midst of those disagreements because you had no other option other than to leave the faith. To love means not to respond in kind to love means allowing people to abuse you and to suffer that abuse with love. Do not seek revenge. Revenge is a cultural value. Revenge is a nationalistic value. Do not seek revenge as Christians. We don't seek to harm others. We seek to resolve our differences and even when we can't, to continue to love one another. The third thing that Peter tells us to do is to cheerfully share your home and your hospitality with those in need. In my translation and yours maybe also, um, it gets translated to share a meal or to share a bed with someone who is in need. And that certainly was a, a prominent understanding of hospitality in the time of the early church. But again, um, scholars believe that there is something actually deeper here that Peter is talking about. And that is, um, he wants people to share their homes 
not just in terms of a meal or a bed, but to share your home for worship. They didn't have church buildings, um, so they would gather. They didn't have synagogues, so they would gather in homes. And when someone of this era and this community shared their home, it was a sacrificial act because that home would then become targeted as a Christian home. It's kind of like in our neighborhood, there's, uh, there's a group home, and uh, it's not always appreciated by the neighborhood. The Homeowners Association has to intervene a lot because of traffic issues. Um, but if you asked anybody in our neighborhood which house it is, everyone would be able to tell you which house it is. It's a marked house. <laughs> and so what Peter is saying is, offer your house for hospitality, to engage in worship, even though you may suffer for it because people will begin to persecute you and your household for opening yourself up to Christians for worship. The fourth and final point that Peter talks about is using your spiritual gifts of grace. Each Christian, each baptized Christian believer has received God's gift of grace. In this particular writing, Peter says that one of these gifts is speaking and the other one is serving. So he says if you are speaking, use, it, use this gift as if God was speaking through you. And if your other gift is gift of service or helping others, do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies you. If you use these gifts of grace, everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter understands that the Christian life can be challenging. And he wants us to know that God is with us and that even though we may suffer unjustly, that God's justice will bring all to judgment. And so we are blessed because as believers, we have been freed from the bondage of sin and death. Our judgment will be a judgment of grace and freedom. And so because of that, we want to live rightly, to be clear-minded, to think rightly in order to pray. We want to be able to love deeply, to even cover the multitude of sins that may exist between us. We want to be able to share fellowship, to allow Christians to gather in our homes. We want to be able to use these spiritual gifts that God has given us, the gift of speaking and the gift of serving, that it may glorify God. And that is how Peter ends this reading is within the, with the doxology, with a blessing. Now all, all glory and power be to God forever and ever. Amen. And to that I say, Amen.